Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Dr. Andrew Slois. Happy trees, happy AVOI. What's going to happen to those when I put them on positive pressure? Emergency medicine physician and assistant professor of adult and pediatric emergency medicine at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. You can't get anything by the airway, man. Rich Levitan, here for your enjoyment. Dr. Rich Levitan, professor at Dartmouth and University of Maryland, who worked in high-volume inner-city trauma centers for 25 years in New York City and Philadelphia, now works in a rural hospital in Maine. Getting lost in pink tissue is a problem. So I think the easiest way to remember the position to put these patients in is to think about them in line at KFC, Dunkin' Donuts, Mickey D's. And Dr. David Barbick, Assistant Professor, UBC Department of Emergency Medicine. Most people will probably have to end up intubating on a stool. Exactly. I need three stools. There's so many awesome pearls in there. Here are the numbers. About a quarter of adult Canadians and a third of Americans are considered obese, with about 3% being morbidly obese. And the proportion of patients with a BMI over 30 is growing every year. Put another way, every shift you do, you're very likely to manage at least a few obese patients. And in some of these patients, their obesity will make their management incredibly difficult, challenging, or even impossible. Obese patients are more likely to develop diabetes, hypertension, coronary disease, peripheral vascular disease, biliary disease, sleep apnea, and depression. They have a higher risk of death from cancer. Many of them develop hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The obese postpartum patient in particular is at higher risk of severe hemorrhage and for PE. I I could go on and on. You see, the protoplasm of the obese patient is a whole different kettle of fish. Their cardiopulmonary physiology is significantly different. They absorb drugs differently, and of course, their anatomy is different. This all makes caring for these patients more challenging. But until recently, the EM community hasn't paid too much attention to these important differences. We're all familiar with the saying, kids are not just small adults, right? Well, obese patients are not just large adults. And it's not only these important differences that we need to understand and apply to our practice, But we should also be aware that ED providers have different attitudes towards obese patients. In particular, studies actually show that we have negative attitudes towards people who suffer from obesity. There's a longer delay to seeing the obese patient in the ED. They're less likely to get a pelvic exam. They're less likely to be operated on, even when there's a clear indication that they should be. There's even evidence to suggest that we undertreat pain in obese patients. Just like adult ED docs who almost never see kids are terrified when a really sick child comes in into their department, seeing a sick obese patient can be a sphincter-tightening experience. I'll give you an example. Just a few months back, I was on shift when I heard a stat call to the resuscitation room. As I rounded the corner to enter the room, I saw my colleague, an excellent junior staff doc who'd been covering the recess room that evening. Matt looked a little bit pale and a bit sweaty. I turned to the patient and saw what looked like a 400-pound man in severe respiratory distress, tripoding with ashen skin, decreased LOA, looking like he was about to code. Matt turned to me and said one word, help. What ensued was a bit of a nightmare. So to help us gain a deeper understanding of the challenges of managing obese patients, 
and to give us some tips and tricks, pearls and pitfalls, nuggets and gems for the difficult situations we might find ourselves in. I'm very pleased to welcome back Dr. Andrew Slois, the founder and creator of the fantastic pediatric EM podcast, PEMED. And I'm honored to introduce our new expert guest, Dr. Rich Levitan, a world-famous airway management educator and innovator, and Dr. David Barbick, a prominent Canadian researcher in obesity and emergency medicine from my hometown. So welcome, Dr. Slois. Great to be here, Anton. Thanks for having me again. It was fantastic for you to invite me. I appreciate it. And welcome, Dr. Levitan. Thank you for having me. And welcome, Dr. Barbick. Thanks very much for having me. Okay, so... Let's actually use this case of the 400-pound, morbidly obese patient just about to code in respiratory distress as a basis for our discussion on managing critically ill obese patients. So a little bit more history here. It turns out that this man had a history of significant sleep apnea and diabetes. He had been increasingly short of breath over the last two days with a productive cough and low-grade fever. His heart rate was 160, blood pressure was 95 on 65, and he was satting 78% on a non-rebreather. His temp was 38.3. So, Dr. Barbeck, first let's just talk about vital signs before we get into managing the ABCs of this patient. How do you interpret these vital signs? What pitfalls should our listeners be aware of when it comes to interpreting the vital signs of obese patients in general? So that's a very good question, Anton. I think one of the big ones to keep in mind is, is that the very often the blood pressure in morbidly obese patients is falsely reassuring in that the blood pressure cuff very often overestimates blood pressure. And for this patient, the systolic of 100 or 90 may actually be a real systolic blood pressure of 80 or 70. And he may actually be in uh, occult shock. In addition, some of the other vital signs are more hard to assess or more hard to get an accurate assessment in terms of heart rate or saturation. Okay, so that patient that comes in massively obese and they're like this one, their blood pressure is 95 on 65, really you should be thinking, well, this is more like 80 on 40. This patient you should be really worried about. And most of these patients have hypertension to begin with, right? Yeah, and I wouldn't discount that. I would say it could also be falsely falsely high and falsely low, right? I mean, we see it both ways with a cuff. You just can't get it the right size and you end up with complete garbage vitals. Look at the pulse and the pulse, not in this patient, but in a patient that looks pretty good, pulse is 80. They're not on any blood pressure medications and the blood pressure is 80 over 40. The first thing I say is, what? That doesn't make sense. I mean, maybe we should we should try to figure out if we, need, if we have a bigger cuff and see if we can retake it. You agree with that? I think that's very accurate. In the critically ill obese patient, it's a very good idea to consider an early arterial line because that will give you the most accurate representation of blood pressure and it'll allow you to trend it over time. Yeah, I agree completely. In fact, I'll see my residents just struggling, struggling, trying to find this little tiny radial art in these really sick clamp down patients. And I don't know how you feel, but I'm just like, go for the groin on those and get the pressure. When they're really, really sick, we need to know, we need to have access. We're going to start them on pressors. I want that art line immediately. Yeah, I don't tend to go to the groin personally, but it's just a comfort thing. I tend to go radial, but with an ultrasound guided. And, you know, but I think regardless of whether or not this person's pressure is truly 70 or 80 or 90, one of the simple ways to think about who we need to resuscitate before we intubate, and that's what needs to happen in this case, he needs to get resuscitated before we intubate this person, is a really simple thing, which is shock index, uh, heart rate over 
blood pressure. And so his heart rate of 160 with a blood pressure of 90, let's say, still has a shock index of 1.6. He's really sick. If he gets induced without pressors up, without fluids, without all of it, you're going to kill him. And in addition to that, you know, this is a patient who's probably already critically acidotic. He's diabetic. He's hypercarbic respiratory failure. His safe apnea time, given his FRC and everything else, is incredibly short. And on top of it, we have probably severe acidosis. So actually, I recently came out with a little mnemonic that I call the vapors. Uh, So it's not just about the tube. It's about the vapors. So the vapors being ventilation, acidosis pressures, which can include peak pressures, plateau pressures, but also, you know, pressures in the gut, blood pressure, oxygenation, regurgitation, and then S is shock index. So ventilation, acidosis, pressures, regurgitation, because fluid management and managing uh, risk of uh, regurgitation and fluids is a big issue. And then lastly, shock index. But This is a a critically ill patient who really needs resuscitation prior to intubation. What about the O2 sat? I find sometimes it's very difficult to get an oxygen saturation on an obese patient. Do you have any tips and tricks on how to get a good sat quick? So I think like any of the patients that we take care of that are extremely septic, whether they're obese or not, usually unless they have really fatty fingers, I don't have as much of a problem, I think, with the pulse socks. But if we did, we can always go to the earlobe. That's a place. But honestly, if they're that clamped down and they're that sick, I think it's going to be unreliable almost anywhere. Yeah. I mean, my experience with sick people is the pulse socks is bad and it's not accurate. (laughs) But you know it's bad. I mean, you rarely get a good waveform with a good reading in somebody who's this sick. Once their blood pressure goes, pulse ox tracings become marginal. Yeah, and with his pressure, I'm surprised, actually, if there is a good waveform to go with it. Uh, You know, the real problem with pulse ox, pulse ox is awful. It's not what we want to know. What we want to know, if we could have a, you know, magic way of looking at a patient and calculate safe apnea time, that would be valuable. But the problem is that a pulse ox of 92 is not an A minus, and a pulse ox of 95 is not a solid A. We have numbers that we attach to grades that we had when we were all in school, and they're much worse than that. Uh, this person who has a, what, a C plus, a 78, uh, you know, the next stop is 50 in coding. But even 92 to 95 is right on the edge of the cliff in these sick high metabolic demands, a heart rate of 160. If you were starting with a pulse ox between 92 and 95 and a heart rate of 160 and this person in shock on induction without ventilation and without careful attention to oxygenation, uh, they're going to quickly drop to the 60s, 70s and be critically ill. My point is that pulse oximetry, unless it's 100 on room air, unless you have a PaO2 by blood gas that you know is 600, our prediction of safe apnea time by pulse ox is not great. And certainly in the 92 to 95 range, you're right on the precipice of that steep drop-off curve in a pulse ox. You know, this person's sick and safe apnea time is non-existent. He's already critically hypoxic. All right. So, Dr. Levitan, you, you touched on a few of the 
physiologic differences between obese patients and uh, other patients. Let's get a little bit more into the pathophys so that we can sort out how to manage these patients better. Dr. Barbeck, what do we really need to know about obese patients' airways and respiratory physiology before we get into how to manage them? So I'll defer to the um, combined experience in the room regarding the airway, but in terms of the respiratory physiology, I think that's something I can speak to. I think one of the the key things, as Dr. Levitan's already pointed out, Rich has pointed out, is, is that they have an incredibly decreased reserve. Um, these are patients very often who have a baseline hypercapnia and hypoxia and obesity hypoventilation syndrome. And uh, with this 400-pound patient with a history of obstructive sleep apnea, that would be right on the top of my mind. Um, they have a decreased functional residual capacity. So their ability to tolerate insults such as pneumonia, pulmonary edema is compromised. Pulmonary compliance is decreased compared to normal patients. As Rich pointed on, their, their safe apnea time is, is markedly decreased, even at a healthy baseline. If you're intubating this patient because of a non-cardiorespiratory issue, their safe apnea time is maybe half or one-third of a normal, healthy 70-kilogram human that we're all taught in medical school. Another key thing here is, is that because of the increased pulmonary and chest wall resistance, your airway pressures are going to be higher when you ventilate them, when you actually get around to intubating them. So your um, plateau and your peak pressures and your PEEP is going to be higher in these patients than a normal, healthy, or somewhat unhealthy 70-kilogram person. So in critical care, we always talk about FRC is the place to be. So what that implies is you really want the alveoli stented open. And like you were saying, all the weight just crushes those little alveoli. So you can't recruit well. And the compliance goes to crap. So when I've got these guys and after I've intubated them, I'm thinking high peeps. I know I'm going to need a lot of peep to to, intubate or to keep their airway stented, maybe 30, sit them up. And I think you love to sit them up, but I sit everybody up. I mean, near 90 degrees and recruit every segment that I can because these really obese patients, their compliance sucks, Just not, not just because they have all that weight on their chest, but they have an extra blood volume that goes to the lungs and destroys compliance. Compliance is volume over pressure, so volume of air, right, over pressure. If you have all this volume of blood, then you can't get as much volume of air so your numerator sucks and your denominator is, is high and destroys your compliance. makes it really hard to ventilate. So for me, it's peep, sit up. I think, Andy, you touched on also a really good thing that I neglected to mention is, is that because of these patients' incredible size and their abdominal girth, very often their abdominal weight is pushing on the bottom portion of their lungs when they're lying flat. So Absolutely. you lie them flat just for assessment's sake, not even to intubate them, and they're extra 100 pounds of abdominal weight is pushing on their base of their lungs to become very atelectatic on top of a respiratory compromise. And then that plays into when you actually go to intubate them. So you're using half of your lung volumes that you would normally would. And once they're intubated, again, recruiting those atelectatic lung bases is a real challenge. Let's back up a bit and take some of these principles of the pathophysiology, which are so important to understand, and actually apply them to, to this patient in front of us. Um, Dr. Levitan, do you want to start off and tell me, just from this starting, you're preparing to intubate this patient, let's just go through the steps incorporating what we've learned about the pathophysiology and how you're going to deal with this 400-pounder in front of you. Yeah, so I think the easiest way to remember the position to put these patients in is to think about them in line at KFC, Dunkin' Donuts, Mickey D's. <laughs> just 
think how they approach and order their meal. First off, it's comforting for me to know that the way they got that big was taking large boluses of food into their upper airway. So there is space there, and that's comforting to know. But secondly, if you think about how they approach the counter, their head is forward relative to their chest. Their face plane is parallel to the back wall. You know, they are upright. And when they're eating, that's exactly what's happening. So what we need to think about is how do we get them, as Andy said, upright as much as possible? And then where does airway obstruction occur? Airway obstruction occurs at the base of tongue and epiglottis. And when they're eating and when they're ordering that food, their head is forward relative to their chest. And so we need to look at what equipment we have and figure out ways to deal with this quickly. You know, you can bend the middle of the bed, but you still need to take the feet and lower the foot section so that, uh, as you pointed out, that panis is falling forward and not falling up. You, if you bend them in half at the stretcher only, you still impact on their lower thorax, and then you're going to get compromised pre-oxygenation. And in fact, in studies, and this is from the Journal of Obesity Surgery, and it says something that there is, in fact, just a journal dedicated to this. But the Journal of Obesity Surgery, there's a great article about pre-oxygenation, that if you pre-oxygenate these people tilted down, so you take the whole stretcher, you put actually a shelf where their feet is, you tilt them down, their whole panis goes forward, that they will pre-oxygenate and their safe apnea time is about 180 seconds. If you then compare that with laying the patient's flat for pre-oxygenation and induce them. Their safe apnea time went from three minutes to two minutes. And, you know, normally safe apnea time, as you pointed out, is about six. So with proper positioning, you get about three minutes, which is half a normal. But if you do them flat, you know, your safe apnea time uh, with pre-oxygenation is a third of normal, two minutes. And then if you bend them in half, you get somewhere between the two because you're impacting on half of their thorax. So, Upright as much as possible is critical. Pulling on the mandible, which is a big deal because if you, you know, have hypercarbic respiratory failure and they're sonorous, and many of them have sleep apnea, as you point out, and you're pre-oxygenating but without a patent upper airway, it's not going to work well. So for part of my rationale for shooting those up the nose at the volumes that I'm using, 15 liters a minute, and if you have high-flow warm humidified, you can go much higher than that. But part of my rationale is you're stenting open the upper airway. And then the other thing I do is kind of, I don't know if you remember in Kill Bill, but you know that uh, there's that move where she turns her hand upward and she does this kind of like thick, you know, like just stab movement. But if you bring your hands upward, you put your elbows into your, uh, into your side and uh, imagine you just reach behind with your hands upward and your elbows in, you get behind their mandible and you lean back with your weight, you pull their mandible forward while you're shooting nose up the nose and you have a face mask on and you're tilting the foot of the bed down as well as maximizing that lower thorax to mid body position open so that their thorax is not impacted by their panis. All of that will maximize your pre-oxygenation. Well, there's so many awesome pearls in there. So let me just review that. So you want to have the patient essentially what you're saying is in reverse Trendelenburg so that you're getting their belly south away from their chest. The trick that I've found, and this is going to apply to most people in the audience, is you basically jack the bed up as high as it goes, and then you drop the feet, and you keep the head where it should be. But most people will probably have to end up intubating 
on a stool. Exactly. I need three stools. Uh, how, many, <laughs> how many times have you had your four pounder just you put them in reverse Trendelenburg and they just slide off the stretcher? That That's doesn't a good happen. Question. I've actually had one patient start to slide a little bit and we use the uh, EMS straps just to sort of hold them in place and it worked really well. Uh, they actually have specific straps for that purpose in the OR, but it's something to consider. You don't want them to sort of slide off the end. And the bariatric surgeons do have platforms that pop up from the base of the bed that catch the feet so their their limbs actually load so they can't slide out. But I think that your point, though, is perfect. You have to drop the foot. You just can't bend them in half because then their panis impacts on the lower thigh. Okay, so we drop the feet, reverse Trendelenburg. You want to get that jaw thrust, so you need a second person doing a two-handed... Elbows in, hands behind the mandible, leaning back so they're not working it with their muscles. They're just... Imagine a water skier. You know, water skiing is the same principle. You don't ski with your elbows out, you ski with your elbows in. But your hands are up at the ceiling, you get behind the mandible, you lean back, your weight is there pulling on the mandible. Okay, and then blasting 15 liters of nasal prong oxygens will help to keep their airway open as well. So, you know, the nose is the passively patent way to oxygenate, and even in the obese people. And, uh, you know, conversely, the mouth is not. They have a big tongue. And if you lay them flat and you hold them midline, you could not design a better way to cause airway obstruction than lay them flat and keep them midline. And so yanking the mandible forward, pressurizing the nasal pharynx, blows open the soft palate off the posterior pharyngeal wall, shoots O's right in. And then I will sometimes add a nasal trumpet. I never do the oral airway up front because I'm worried about them triggering gagging. But I will sometimes add a nasal trumpet, but O's up the nose and then a non-rebreather or BVM with PEEP if you need that on top of it. But I think that flushing the nasal pharynx and using some pressure to blow open the soft palate is critical. And then the positioning and pulling on the mandible. Okay. And then ramping the patient, you know, there's these devices you can buy that you shove behind their their shoulders that can that can ramp them up. If you don't have that, you can use towels. I understand, Dr. Levitan, that you were the inventor of this ramping idea. So, yeah, there's a little bit of a story to this, but basically, if you bring up the upper half of their body, you still have to get their head forward relative to their chest. I, on a teaching level, was frustrated with the word sniffing because I had no idea what it meant, and every anesthesiologist had a different idea of what proper sniffing position was. A handful of anesthesiologists out of Stanford wrote a paper on laryngoscopy in the morbidly obese. It was a great paper. It basically said that if you properly position people, that the obese are no harder to intubate with DL than normal patients. But I commented that they had not defined positioning. And they said, we couldn't define positioning in a manner that the editors accepted because our term sniffing had no hard definition. And so it was removed from the paper. I shared with them my ear to sternal notch line. Uh, you know, basically bringing the head forward so that the ear is aligned with the sternal notch, the face plane is parallel to the ceiling. And that became the standard by which Stanford started practicing. And they redid the paper. And in the Journal of Obesity Surgery, written by Collins and Brodsky, and I'm the last author, they compared ramped positioning versus standard positioning, which was minimal head elevation and found a significant improvement in laryngoscopy with 100% success at intubation. 
That term, ramped positioning and then irresternal notch, caught on like wildfire. And around the world now, it is the standard way of intubating the morbidly obese. And there is actually a course called the the Advanced uh, Bariatric Life Support Course, or BLS, Bariatric Life Support, which actually includes this as a recommendation. So irresternal notch and ramped positioning is now gone whole hog into anesthesia, and it is standard worldwide for inducing the morbidly obese. Wow. Good for you, man. I'm, I'm honored to have you here again. So Dr. Levitan had mentioned using non-invasive positive pressure ventilation to try and open up the airway. What other roles does non-invasive positive pressure ventilation play particularly in the, in the obese patient? So in my mind, anytime I intubate anybody who could be severely acidotic, could have increasing CO2, and could be a potential for peri-arrest, whether they be morbidly obese or otherwise, then I am extremely concerned about the physiology I'm going to meet when I arrest them. But I want to know what is going to happen to the preload and afterload as soon as I turn their very negative, very happy negative pressure environment of the lungs that we're all breathing right now, happy trees, happy alveoli, What's going to happen to those when I put them on positive pressure? And if I have a patient who comes in satting 80, septic, that I know has got a pH of 6.9 or worse, then I'm going to put them on a BiPAP circuit to start. And I'm going to hook them right up to the vent. And I'm going to dial in the vent exactly like I'm going to have them once they're intubated. I'm going to give them some pressure support. I'm going to give them some PEEP. I'm going to give them a tidal volume. I'm probably going to put them SIMV. And I'm going to turn the right to zero. And I'm just going to let them breathe. Because in SIMV, every breath that they take, they're going to get the pressure support and PEEP. For the most part, I know that could be arguable depending on how you set your vent. And then if their pressure drops, I'm very interested in that because the put the tube in is probably monkey work. If you listen to what Rich said and you get them ear to sternal notch, you're going to get that tube. What I'm worried about is are they going to rest while I'm getting distracted trying to put the tube in? So if the preload starts to bottom, then I'm going to put the ultrasound on real quick and say, well, crap, the IVC is horrible. Get some fluids in this guy. Or look, the squeeze is terrible. We need some push-dose epi and start the norepi drip, and then I'm going to put the tube in. So I think it has a tremendous role in figuring out whether they're morbidly obese or not, what is going to happen to the physiology of the chest and the heart once I go to put them on the vet. Most of these patients, or many of them, are getting intubated for hypercarbic respiratory failure. This person has more going on than that. But hypercarbic respiratory failure is a common sort of endpoint of a lot of these super obese folks. And many of them warrant, I think, a trial of non-invasive. In addition to, you know, Andy pointing out the benefits of that, that you're going to, you know, augment ventilation, you're going to distend some alveoli, you get a very important thing. You get, you get a number. You get a sense of what their minute ventilation is. One of the things that in the past I never actually calculated, but more and more using non-invasive prior to intubation, I have a number of what that minute ventilation is. And normal minute ventilation, you know, five to eight liters a minute in these folks, depending on how acidotic and uh, hyperventilatory they are, it could be significantly more. So they're really acidotic, the salicylates, the acute renal failure, the rhabdos, the DKAs. Their minute ventilation could be 20s, could be 30s. Uh, I've seen as high as 35 liters a minute on non-invasive prior to intubation. And conversely, the hypocarb, uh, hypercarbic, COPD, asthmatic, you know, hypoventilatory people could have minute ventilations of two to three liters a minute. 
And I think one of the goals that I now look at when I'm managing these cases is not to go from extremes of minute ventilation before the procedure to normal. Like I consider what's going to happen, as Andy points out, with the pressures. If you have extremely low minute ventilation and they have abnormal lungs from COPD or asthma and then you go very high, you're going to get barotrauma, you're going to get auto-peep, you're going to get hemodynamic collapse. If they have very high minute ventilations and you go to normal, you're going to fail to keep up. The acidosis is going to get worse and they could go cardiogenically uh, into real trouble if they're already starting out critically hypoxic. So in addition to what Andy pointed out as a benefit of non-invasive, getting that number, framing that as, you know, your target post-intubation so you're not making these acute changes that have hemodynamic consequence, I think that's useful. In obese patients, are there some tools that you'd prefer over other tools in terms of airway, of securing the airway? Well, you know, so let's dial back. I'm an old guy in the emergency medicine game. 20 years ago, we had DL, direct laryngoscopy. We had mass ventilation, and if all else failed, we cut the neck. Unfortunately, morbid obesity is bad on all three, but getting lost in pink tissue is a problem. So you have DL, you have mask, and you have surgical all of which can be very challenging in the morbidly obese. Now we have a couple of technologies which are changing things dramatically. Superglottic Andy, uh, superglottic airway, as Andy points out, or superglottic you can, Andy. You can we'll just call it. him superglottic <laughs> Andy. SGA. SGA. Make the T-shirt. SGA. You heard it here first. I think we need, you know, at Copyright superglottic Andy. Uh, your, I, I Should be my podcast handle. That's my Twitter handle. Superglottic Andy. I love the LMA. I love my wife, but I love the LMA well, there too. There you go. <laughs> no, but superglottic Andy points out that uh, you know the LMA is an obese resistant uh, device, uh, assuming they are in a position that their panis, as David says, and their, F, you know, their, their whole positioning is not impeded uh, from a ventilation perspective. Because the one issue with the LMA, if they're laying perfectly flat, the pressures that you generate with it will not be able to ventilate them unless you position them right. So, you know, the LMA doesn't get you these incredibly high peak pressures that you can generate with tracheal tube. But that being said, Superglottic Andy is correct in pointing out that the LMA is an obese-resistant device. And then if you think about it, video laryngoscopy certainly gives you that more set-off view, and you're less likely to get lost in pink mush, but you still have to be completely consumed with epiglottoscopy because everything's going to be pink mush on the inside, and you have to just slow down, follow the curve of that device down, see the uvula, see the palatal arch, know that the uvula is pointing to the epiglottis, have your yank hour ready, and very, very carefully and incrementally, and I now say with two fingers, you roll down the blade until you dab the posterior pharynx and the epiglottis comes into view. The way to screw up these airways is to plunge into pink mush lift. The epiglottis may not be what you think it should look like. It may be a long tubular structure, and you may need to lift it directly. There's so much fat pressing everywhere. And sometimes you need to stent open the airway by using the Mac as a miller to lift it up because their epiglottis can be difficult to control. So finding the epiglottis, critical, and then controlling it, critical, bimanual laryngoscopy, positioning. But getting back to the device side, supraglottic airways has changed the game. Video laryngoscopy, I think, is a huge advantage in some of these cases. So I would recommend a GlideScope 3 in most adults, and I would recommend... DLVL blades like the Titanium Mac and the Storts, I would go with a four for all. Just be very careful on your introduction. 
uh, epiglottoscopy, slow progression, two fingers, follow midline, because the real challenge is pink mush. It's everywhere. And so I, I go dead midline, two fingers as I start, very incremental, slow advancement, looking for a horizontal line that is the epiglottis and not overrunning it, poking around in the pink, because it gets very hard to identify landmarks. The possibility of, of fiber optic bronch is is there if you're comfortable with it or if you have someone that's comfortable with it. I've personally, on a couple of morbidly obese patients who are in respiratory distress, done a facilitated delayed sequence with ketamine and fiber optic. And I think realistically, in hindsight, it was probably the way to go because as has been previously mentioned, they were profoundly acidotic to Kipnik heading towards disaster if we RSI'd them. And a, a wake facilitated fiber optic was the way to go. This is not the airway you want the R1 messing around with or letting the med student try. This is the most experienced operator in the room. This is an anticipated challenging airway. I like the term. And uh, I heard it from someone who knows a lot more about airway than I do. And um, don't let the junior trainee mess around with this one. Let them put in the central line or the I.O. You yeah, unless just, you want to practice your code. Yeah. Then it's a good, yeah. Then it's, then then it's, it's a, a good, good time it's a to good do it. Okay, so we've gone through all the different tools that we can use, pre-oxygenation. Let's go on to induction agents and paralytics. We've got a few different choices. We can do an awake intubation. We can just use ketamine. We can paralyze the patient. Out of your list of medications, what's going to be your recipe for the morbidly obese patient who's crashing? You can choose a bunch of different medications. You just have to know what the indications for the different medications are and what the potential limitations for each medication is. I think in a patient like the case that you presented us with, 400 pounds, septic shock, I would probably go with ketamine as an induction agent. There is the potential limitation that if his adrenal drive has been washed out over the last few days, he may actually drop his pressure somewhat. But I think that risk is less than something like propofol. You could also go with very high dose fentanyl, almost like a cardiac surgery induction agent, and then a very small amount of ketamine or atomidate. Those would be my two choices, but I'll defer to these two gentlemen in terms of other options. So my repertoire of meds is pretty limited. I generally don't use other agents than Vitamidate, Rock, Sucks, and Ketamine. I steer clear of propofol for most inductions uh, for a number of reasons. But in this person whose heart rate's 160, whose blood pressure is 90, I think ketamine would be the safest drug. And I think, you know, pushing the resuscitation along before you get to the tube is critical. So getting that heart rate down, getting that blood pressure up before induction. So resuscitate before you intubate. Hang the NORAD first. You can get by with it peripherally for that 20, 30, 45 minutes. Don't worry about it. Ramp up the NORAD, uh, you know, the norepinephrine. NORAD is what the Aussies call it. But ramp up the NORAD and get their pressure better before you jump on the tube, regardless. And, yeah, and, before, and before the induction agent. I think that muscle relaxants in this patient, while beneficial for optimizing laryngoscopy and allowing a supraglottic airway to be placed without risk of active vomiting, the problem is that when you take away muscular tone and you give an agent like Atomidate and you take away adrenergic tone, I think you're going to kill them. So, you know, I think this is a case where 
it is worth, uh, and Ruben Strayer has pushed this, uh, as has Scott Weingart, pushing, you know, ketamine, maybe, you know, taking a look. And I, I thought it was insightful, actually. I was just with Ruben out in Yellowstone, and he pointed out something which I hadn't quite thought of this way. But what you need to succeed at intubating with a video laryngoscope in terms of insertion and the amount of force and all of it is less than what you need with DL. And so we historically, I think, reverted to RSI in many occasions because we wanted to optimize first pass and all the rest of it. But you can get by with a video laryngoscope with less view and less force and less distraction. And a dose of ketamine, taking a look and seeing, hey, can I drop this tube in, keep that patient breathing, get the tube in, or do you need muscle relaxants? I, I think in this case, I would be very leery of a true RSI with these parameters until you got the parameters fixed. And so yeah. resuscitate prior to intubate. But if your hand is forced, uh, I think ketamine would be the safest choice. Rich brings up a very good point about giving the norepi norad through a, a peripheral line totally viable. You can also give it through an IO. And in these morbidly obese patients where Peripheral IV access or central line access can be challenging at best, even with yeah. ultrasound, drop in an IO. Yeah, let's talk more about IV access. So we're all assuming we can give whatever drugs we want, but we may very well be in a situation where we can't get any access and you can't even be starting to think about your drugs. First, you need access. So let's get access. What are your tips and tricks on getting access? You, you mentioned an IO. I found that with an IO, if you use the largest needle that they have in the IO kits, that sometimes those aren't even big enough. So you don't necessarily have to go in the pre-tibial spot. That's what we're all taught in medical school and residency. That's what the New England Journal Medicine videos are on. That's not the only spot. Uh, you can go humerus, proximal humerus. You can go sternum. Sternum's a little scary. Yeah. Uh, U.S. Army medics, Canadian Army medics, they get taught when they've had an arm or two legs blown off because of an IED, you go to the sternum. With the standard yeah. ECIO, not with, with the, the standard, talon, not with one of those special chests. No, with a standard IO, and then you secure with the plastic and the tape. Good. Either access for IO is good, and uh, just make sure that you have the longest needle you can get, which is the 45 millimeter needle in your, in your department. The yellow one. And, right. And test that your easy IO or the IV that you're using is functional prior to committing because jumping without clear, you know, IV access is a problem. And, uh, Ken Butler, who I teach regularly with in Baltimore makes a point of having two good lines, yeah. you know, because if you get halfway there and half your induction or half your muscle relaxant goes in, you could get in a real trouble if your lines are not working. So, hmm. So IO is is one option, and if your needle's not long enough to go pretibial, then you can go proximal humerus or you can go eek scary sternum, uh, especially in an obese patient who you don't really know how far you're going. But I guess the idea is you push the IO drill in until you hit bone, and then you do know how far you are, yeah. and then you go. Okay. So those, those, that's the IO options. I'm a big fan of IOs. What about just placing peripheral lines? Any tips and tricks on how to get those peripheral lines in? After I got the IO, more than likely, because I'm not personally going to fool it, even though I feel like I'm pretty good with the ultrasound, I'm not going to take two minutes to do that. If it's this patient that's about to arrest, IO first and resuscitate and then go back and get peripheral lines would be, would be my, 
my forte. And I would say ultrasound, ultrasound, and ultrasound. So ultrasound wherever you can get the line. And this person's obviously sick enough. They're going to need a central line. Sometimes you can't get it in the neck because the neck is so squat down. You can't get infraclavicular, supraclavicular, or IJ. So one tip that I have is I will often put a central, a small central, even a triple lumen will go in a proximal deep brachial right up close to the armpit, not quite to the axilla, just like a pick line. And that's a pretty easy thing to get if you can't get something peripheral. But the other one, and I know you heard me say femoral before, I don't love femoral lines. You know, when I was in the U, we didn't want to see femoral lines. If you can't get anything anywhere else, have someone hold the panis up. Once the panis is out of the way, often the femoral line is a chip shot. It's right there with the ultrasound, and you can pop it in if you really need access quick. Yeah, sort of a, a frog leg position. Frog leg position. Ultrasound have have a second person. Yeah. Well, Move all that adipose too. tissue out of the way. As Andy pointed out, the neck is not a great space in these folks. And then lastly, getting them flat enough to do the neck or the subclavian is not good for their respiratory physiology. Yeah, I think the femorals, I mean, not ideal, but not bad if you're keeping it in for 24 hours. Okay, so just so far to review here, we've, uh, we start with our IOs. If you can't get them pretibial because there's too much adipose tissue, you can go proximal humeral or, or sternum. Then we're going to be putting in some peripherals. Use your ultrasound. And then in terms of a central line, the deep brachial, then uh, femoral in frog leg position with someone holding the panis away. I want to back up a little bit and talk about dosing of these drugs, dosing of ketamine, atomidate, fentanyl, all these drugs that we're thinking about using in the obese patient and the critically ill obese patient. What do we have to know about dosing these medications? So very good question. I think one of the key things is if you're not sure, call for help. Get your pharmacist, your ED pharmacist, your ICU pharmacist, your hospital on call pharmacist on board early with these patients because they're an invaluable resource and I use mine on a regular basis with these patients. That said, a quick and dirty rule is lipophilic drugs are going to be total body weight dosed. So some of the numbers you're going to think of and see for these patients for total body weight dosing drugs, lipophilic drugs, are going to boggle your mind. Doses of propofol that would normally completely tranquilize most normal humans are going to gently cause RSI in these morbidly obese patients, given the proviso that if they already have soft blood pressures, that's probably not the medication you want to be using. Hydrophilic drugs, water-soluble drugs such as ketamine are going to be ideal body weight dose. You're not going to sit there in a critically ill patient and figure out their ideal body weight exactly, but you're going to take a rough estimate based on a 6-foot, 450-pound man. His ideal body weight is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 170, 180 pounds, and you can base it off that, 75 to 90 kilos. Let's say we've made a few attempts at intubating this patient and they haven't gone well and you've decided you need to go to a crack. What are the things to look out for? What are some of the tips and tricks we can use if we are stuck in the situation where we need to go for the crack? I have a lot to say on this, but before I jump in, I just want to point out that the time to ventilation, if you're waiting to ventilate and oxygenate this patient through the neck, is going to be a minimum of 100 seconds. So we have to address the oxygenation issues before they code. 
So the time to do the surgical airway, if this is required, is not after the patient has coded. As Andy points out, a supraglottic airway rescue ventilation should precede putting plastic in the trachea. But if there is no way that you're coming from above, and if you are at risk of losing the ability to oxygenate and ventilate, then I think you are in the situation of what I would call the surgically inevitable airway. But I don't think of surgical airways as a rescue technique. What we need is oxygenation first and plastic second. But that being said, if let's say you've tried ketamine and in the midst of that, you trigger massive emesis. Now you're between a rock and a hard place. You can try suctioning, but, uh, you know, supraglottic airways are not going to go great. Passive oxygenation is not going to go great. Mass ventilation is not going to go great. Fiber optics is gone. Video is going to be challenging. You know, there are some of these super obese patients who recognizing the limitations of your rescue oxygenation and ventilation techniques or let's say they have angioedema or they have some other thing and a surgically inevitable airway is encountered because you've lost that ability to oxygenate and ventilate, then the way I would think about this is go big and do not worry about where the cricothyroid membrane is. I think cognitively and procedurally in emergency medicine, we've been stymied by our fears when we start because people with one finger and one centimeter are trying to palpate the CTM, the cricothyroid membrane. And instead, I moved on to what I call the laryngeal handshake, five fingers. You rock the rhomboid or the larynx with your fingers up high, getting the hyoid. Then you get the thyroid. Then you get the cricoid. But what we need to let go of is the notion that we need to identify the cricothyroid membrane before we start the surgical airway. What we need to identify is midline. You rock the rhomboid of the whole larynx, you identify midline, you make an incision. In the large patient, that incision needs to be extended because in order to go deeper, you need to go longer. And so basically, I would never go less than two and a half to three finger breaths. If you know where the thyroid is, I'm going from the thyroid south to over the cricoid. If you don't know where it is, you make a big incision vertically and your finger after that vertical incision will then be able to poke around and find the CTM. But you might be at two or three knuckles down before you're able to even appreciate the cricothyroid membrane. So I think you then have to be willing to extend the incision vertically. Before we move on from the airway, let's just talk a little bit about post-intubation care and how that changes for the obese patient. Dr. Barbeck, Okay. What, are, what are some of the key things we should be thinking about in the post-intubation phase for this morbidly obese patient? So in terms of your vent settings, protective lung volumes, following your ArtsNet principles of minimal volume, minimal pressure, but with the proviso that you're probably going to need higher peeps, plateau pressures, and peak pressures to ventilate and oxygenate these patients appropriately. Positioning, try and keep them in the ramped position, and ideally the reverse Trendelenburg foot drop position that we talked about previously. And in terms of optimal sedation, working with your hemodynamic parameters to keep them compliant and cooperative and if necessary, paralyzed. Dr. Slois, how is the normal ECG in an obese patient different than the rest of us? So there's a couple of things thrown around there. That it's always possible that you're going to have low voltage because the distance from the electrodes to the heart. So don't let that fool you, but also don't just write it off as fat. You need to put an ultrasound probe on there and make sure they don't have a large pericardial effusion that got you 
into the position that you're in now. Okay, so a lot of these patients will have low voltages. Low voltage. Uh, and can sure. look like a pericardial effusion, so, so rule it out. you want to rule it out. Pretty but easy. Okay. QT is thrown around a lot, but I'll tell you, when you look at the papers, the QT is a little longer, but we're talking like 460, 470. Not pathologic QTs, not 500, 550, 600, where it's like it's a, it has to be an electrolyte or they should be in the cath lab kind of QTs. So there's a QT variation, but it's usually not pathologic. So you can always look at an old EKG to confirm that. So the other thing to touch on is they may often have evidence of LVH and an obesity cardiomyopathy, which is not net really detectable on ECG. It's more of an echo diagnosis, and it's a combination of impaired contractility and diastology. Okay, so low voltages, LVH, they might have a longer QT, but it's usually not a pathological QT. So if you do see QTs that are 550, there's a reason for that. It's not just that they're obese. So you've done your ECG, you've done your post-intubation care. Uh, We all know that in septic patients, we want to get those antibiotics in real fast. Dr. Barbic, how are we going to dose our antibiotics in the 400-pound patient? So there are, there are weight-based adjustments for most antibiotics. This is not something you're going to remember. It's not something you're probably going to be able to look up in a super timely fashion. So again, go back to your, your pharmacist. But beta-lactams, your piptazo, it's an ideal body weight plus a conversion factor. The big one that we need to very often remember in this era of MRSA is the vancomycin dosing. And... Latest ID Society of America recommendations are 25 to 30 milligram per kilo of total body weight dosing for vancomycin as a loading dose. So we're talking like three, four grams, five grams of vancomycin. Yeah. There's a paper that came out recently showing that the tissue levels of vancomycin are suboptimal when we stick with the traditional one gram Q12. On top of that, that we're just breeding more resistance if we're not getting tissue penetration. Okay. So the bottom line is you shouldn't be just giving your usual doses of antibiotics in these patients. You really need to look them up or if you have a pharmacist, uh, call the pharmacist. And you need to get those antibiotics in fast, but uh, you also need to get the right dose. All right, let's do the big review. First, the vital signs. Vital signs can be misleading or difficult to obtain in obese patients. Consider an early art line because blood pressure can be falsely elevated and you may miss that occult shock. Don't forget the often useful shock index to help you detect occult shock. That's heart rate over blood pressure and any number over one should make you worry about occult shock. What about oxygen saturation? The pulse oximetry is often unreliable in obese patients. You can try the earlobe, but even better, get a blood gas early. What about physiologic differences we need to consider when approaching the airway of the obese patient? Well, there's the obesity hypoventilation syndrome. These patients have baseline hypercapnia and hypoxia. They have decreased functional residual capacity and decreased pulmonary compliance. So obese patients have very little respiratory reserve, and have much shorter safe apnea times, so you need to be prepared. When considering what needs to be addressed besides getting the tube into the trachea of these patients that are critically ill, Dr. Levitan's The Vapors mnemonic can be helpful. V, ventilation. A, acidosis. P, 
pressures, that's blood pressure, peak pressures, plateau pressures, abdominal pressures. O, oxygenation, so pre-oxygenation. R, regurgitation. And S, shock index like we were talking about before. So now that you know all this about obese patients, what are you going to actually do at the bedside? Number one, positioning. Sit the patient up to get their panis out of the way. You want the patient as upright as possible. Now to accomplish this, you need to use a foot down reverse Trendelenburg position. Get that head up as high as possible. You'll probably need to stand on a stool to intubate unless you're as tall as Dr. Barbic, who's like six foot seven. And ramp the patient's head so that their external auditory canal lines up with their sternal notch. That way, their head is anterior to their chest like they're waiting in line at McDonald's. Next, we want to open the airway. Now, there's three ways to open the airway. First, get an assistant to use a two-handed water skiing type technique to lift that mandible right to the ceiling. Next, use 15 liters of preferably high-flow O2 via nasal prongs, which blows open the soft palate, and consider a nasal trumpet or two as well. Finally, non-invasive, positive pressure ventilation can be used to augment ventilation and distend the alveoli, as well as get a sense of the patient's minute ventilation, with the goal of not changing the minute ventilation too drastically and suddenly, which may cause hemodynamic compromise when you intubate. So, we've positioned the patient, we've opened the airway. Now, don't forget to resuscitate before you intubate resuscitate before you intubate. Remember, the shocky obese patient should get fluids and early pressors, if needed, via two good lines. You can start with 45 millimeter yellow IOs in the pretibial location, and if need be, use the proximal humerus or sternum if there's too much adipose tissue in the legs. And then move on to ultrasound-guided peripheral lines, or a deep brachial line or ephemeral line if necessary. It's probably best to generally avoid high necklines in massively obese patients. Now, you're going to choose an airway tool. Video laryngoscopy, VL, may have a slight advantage over direct laryngoscopy in obese patients. So you've chosen your airway device. Next, you're thinking about induction dosages. Lipophilic drugs like propofol are total body weight dosed while water-soluble drugs like ketamine are ideal body weight dose. You may opt to use lower doses of these drugs in critically ill obese patients and skip paralysis altogether. With intubation, advance slowly and incrementally rather than diving into pink mush. And if your VL is not going well, think like superglottic Andy. A superglottic device like an LMA can be considered an obese-resistant device. Another option would be an awake-facilitated fiber-optic intubation. In the post-intubation phase, all the same principles in terms of positioning and airway pressures apply. Next, you'll probably be getting an ECG. There are three ECG findings that are typical in obese patients to think about. One is low voltages. The next is prolonged non-pathologic QTs. And finally, left ventricular hypertrophy. Now, in this patient we were talking about, and in a lot of critically ill obese patients, we're going to be thinking about giving antibiotics. Get your pharmacist on the line for appropriate dosing. 
one drug that's often underdosed in these obese patients is vancomycin because it's total body weight dose. So they're going to need doses of like three, four, five grams. Our second case. A 23-year-old morbidly obese woman was driving on the highway in an ice storm, lost control, and slammed into a cement barrier. Paramedics were unable to intubate her. She comes in with a GCS of 8, blood pressure of 90 on 50, heart rate at 125, and an oxygen saturation of 88% on a non-rebreather. There's no obvious external signs of trauma. You start your primary survey. So Dr. Barbic, why is it important for us to learn about trauma in obese patients specifically? Morbidly obese patients are at higher risk for severe trauma, less likely to wear their seatbelts, and they're at higher risk of mortality from a traumatic brain injury. And overall, for a similar ISS score to non-obese patients, they have higher rates of morbidity and mortality. So any obese patient that's involved in a moderate to major trauma is probably sicker than they appear. So when I think about a patient who's hypovolemic in shock, I would assume that they're bleeding from one of five places, the scalp, the extremities, the retroperitoneum, the lungs, or the abdomen. And since I don't see anything on the extremities of the scalp, then I'm in the box somewhere. So I'm thinking that this patient is going to need, need resuscitation, they're going to need blood, and they're probably hypovolemic from a bleeder that I may not likely find no matter what I do initially. So they show up in a level one trauma center, we're going to throw a chest x-ray, potentially a pelvis x-ray, throw an ultrasound probe on there, all our crap pretty much in a morbidly obese patient because the chest x-ray is going to be underpenetrated. The bones you'll probably get in the pelvis, so that might give you a clue. But the fast is notoriously bad, even in a good sonographer's hands. You might see 250 milliliters in Morrison's, but when you're this deep, 14, 15, 25 sonometers on an ultrasound probe, a curvilinear probe, you ain't going to see anything in there. So it's a matter of bad protoplasm to start, horrible data collection, blood pressure cuff doesn't work, the x-ray doesn't work, the CT even misses stuff, but the idea is at least get them to the CT, which is probably the most sensitive thing. And on top of that, if you have to do procedures right out of the gate, you have to intubate, you have to put lines in, that is difficult to do because they're obese for all the reasons we've been talking about since we started the podcast, and that's delaying getting to the definitive test, which is probably going to be the CAT scan in this patient that you presented. So all of this time, it's going to take two, three, four times as long potentially to get this patient to the scanner. It's going to take two, three, four times as long to get this patient to blood. It's going to take two, three, four times as long to get this patient intubated. So for all those reasons, morbidity goes through the roof. Okay. And these patients, I understand, they're less likely to sustain head injuries and abdominal injuries and more likely to sustain chest injuries. Is that... Yeah, so chest, the abdomen is its own little protection <laughs> with all that adipose, but it's also its own little mask. So when things are bad in there, it's really difficult to tell. Little peritoneal injuries are missed, little small bowel injuries are missed. Now, if they have enough edema, that fat's fantastic because it's going to light up. You'll see stranding, but often it's going to make the radiologist's job extremely, extremely difficult in the early phase. The later phase, it's better. Let's talk a little bit more about imaging. POCUS is going to be challenging. You know, if you do identify something, you're lucky, but most of the time you're not going to be able to see anything because there's 25 centimeters of adipose tissue in between you and the organs. Then you've got poor penetration when it comes to x-rays. So your x-rays are going to be a lot more challenging. Next down the line, we've got CT. Just so that we have an idea when we have a critically ill patient, who we can actually send to the CT scanner and who we can't, what are the general cutoffs 
for sending a patient to a CT in terms of their weight? So it really depends on the make of the scanner. Sometimes the text will tell you it's the circumference of the ring. It's not actually the circumference most of the time. It's the actual bed and the gantry assembly to hold the patient is weight tested. And it runs anywhere from about 350 to 450 pound weight limits. Okay. And that's the same with MRI, about 350, 400 pounds? It depends depends on the machine, but most of them are in that range. And the MRI is going to be potentially more challenging because sometimes you really can't fit the patient in those. Now you're getting the tube is getting smaller. The ring is smaller. Remember Violet Beauregard from Willy Wonka? You know, when she blew up like a, yeah, you're not getting her in there. So if you have a patient that's wider than they are tall, that is actually, I've had to measure a patient's circumference to see if they could go in. That is something to consider. So I have a challenge for anyone who's listening is think of or find out where your nearest bariatric capable scanner is. So in a city of Toronto, 6.1 million people, there is one bariatric scanner, and it's not at a major level one trauma center. So you have to have protocols in place pre-established with your radiology and your trauma service, or just for general medical patients, where and how you're going to transport this patient should they require CT imaging. Sometimes it's the zoo. So when I first got to Houston in 2006, we actually had to send patients to the zoo for an open MRI, which was right next door. I want to talk about two particular injuries, so pneumothorax and pelvic fractures. Any tips and tricks about putting in that chest tube? Right. You know, and actually this is uh, very pertinent because I just gave a course elsewhere after Yellowstone and I was talking about some horrible cases and challenging cases and cases that sort of shake you to your core. And an eMERGE doc shared with me a a case they had of uh, emergent crike and working through too small an incision. And just like in a chest tube, you know, if you go too small in the crike, you can't really open up the skin. And so in these pneumothoraces cases, if you're placing a chest tube in trauma in the morbidly obese, in order to go deeper, you're going to need to go longer to get your finger down, get the big mother Kelly down to the rib, palpate the rib. You might be three knuckles in before you can even palpate the rib. So you're going to need a very long incision compared to your usual. Very easy to put into the sub-Q space. Exactly. In a, so yeah, big cut, like a partial thoracostomy <laughs> cut. And so I can get like two or three fingers in there and then a smaller into the pleural space. And I want to know that I sank that tube. I don't want any any concerns that I didn't. Okay, so that's pneumothoraces. What about pelvic fractures? So these are tough. I mean, if someone's hypotensive and maybe they got a bunch of bruising around the pelvis and you're suspecting a pelvic fracture, you can't find a, a cause of loss of the blood anywhere else. Pelvic binder, are they going to fit these patients? What are you going to do with a suspected pelvic fracture? I think bind with sheets and use towel clamps, which yeah, two, is two sheets. acceptable. And then um, surgical X lap with packing or angiography. If you're not at a trauma center, you need to get on the horn quickly and call and get them transferred out. So quick review here of the second case. Morbidly obese patients are more likely to suffer major trauma and they suffer higher mortality, even though they might not appear that sick. When it comes to imaging, x-ray and POCUS usually aren't very helpful and CT is probably your best bet, but only if the patient's under 350 to 450 pounds, depending on your scanner. So you need to find out what your institution's cutoff is, and if need be, 
how to get the patient to the nearest bariatric center with a CT scanner that can handle your patient. If they're unstable, they'll need to go to the OR or angio regardless. For pneumothoraces, just like for crike in obese patients, use a big incision, and for unstable pelvic fractures, use sheets rather than a pelvic binder that's too small. All right, so before you go, just a quick announcement. For those ED leaders and administrators out there, there's a fabulous conference coming up November 18th and 19th called EDAC, Emergency Department Administration Conference in Toronto. It'll be your chance to network with leaders in emergency medicine across Canada. And this year, the theme on the second day is care of the elderly. I'll be giving a talk on how FOAM, free open access medical education, can be integrated into your ED. Now, full disclosure here, this conference is put on by the Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit academic institute whose mission is to improve ED care across the nation, as well as North York General Hospital, both of whom also support EM cases on a consultative and financial basis so that I can provide you with the best free medical education that I can while keeping my sanity. For more info on this incredible EDAC conference, visit sremi-edac.com. That's S-R-E-M-I-E-D-A-C.com. So until next time, here's the quote of the month from an unknown source. Heroism is a negotiation between strengths and weaknesses. This is what we should look for in our leaders, not perfectionism. Thank you.